So if I am correct, we finished 34 last time, and that means that we should be on Job chapter 35. This is Elihu, and Elihu has got something like six chapters devoted to him. And Tom was of the opinion last time that Elihu was mostly reiterating the things that Job's friends had said. And I reread it, and I don't think that's the case at all. Elihu is speaking for himself. And for those of you who were here last time, he starts off by rebuking Job's friends for not being more effective in rebuking Job. So Job's three friends each made two speeches, and Job countered each of those speeches by insisting that he was in fact righteous and none of the things that were happening to him were deserved. And at the end of those six speeches, the three older men fell silent because they didn't have anything else to say. So at that point, Elihu, who was a younger man, jumps in and says, you guys are pitiful, or words to that effect, in that you are unable to rebuke this sinner and bring him to heal. And so I'm going to do it for you. And that's sort of his attitude. One of the reasons that Tom believes as he does is because when God comes in, God rebukes the first three, the three older men, but he does not rebuke Elihu. I don't know why he doesn't, because I don't see anything in Elihu's speech that is qualitatively any different than the other three friends. He isn't any more help to Job than they were, so I'm not sure why God doesn't rebuke him. I will speculate the first three guys are old, wise men who should know better. Elihu is a young, brash guy who is perhaps not expected to know better. And so God rebukes the older guys with the understanding then that Elihu is going to hear that and take counsel from the chastening of the others. That's a guess on my part. And it may be that the author of Job just figured that three were enough. I, I, I just don't know. So anyway, we're in Job 35. And this is halfway through Elihu's speech. And Elihu answered and said, Do you think this to be just? Do you say, It is my right before God, that you ask, What advantage have I? How am I better off than if I sin? I will answer you, and your friends with you. So I will answer you, Job, and furthermore, I will answer the other three guys. The question is, obviously, and Job said this earlier, I'm in the right here. I haven't done anything wrong. I would love to come into court with God, but I know that if I did, I wouldn't be able to speak and so forth. So for Elihu to paraphrase Job in that way, I think is consistent with the character of what Job has been saying all along. And then what advantage have I? How am I better off than if I had sinned? So he's paraphrasing Job, and Job has said, I have been righteous. How has my righteousness made me better off? Because I am being treated as if I had sinned. That's the essence of the argument that he's paraphrasing. Now, verse 4, I will answer you. So this is Elihu now speaking. I will answer you and your friends with you. In other words, 
I will tell you what the answer to that is, and furthermore, I will tell your friends what the answer to that is, because they were ineffective when they tried to answer you earlier. Verse 5. Look at the heavens and see, and behold the clouds which are higher than you. If you have sinned, what do you accomplish against him? And if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness concerns a man like yourself, and your righteousness a son of man. So what he's saying is, neither your righteousness nor your wickedness has any effect on God. God is God. And you behave righteously, you don't give him anything. You behave wickedly, you don't hurt him in any way. And by the way, this argument has been made before in the book, and I've forgotten who made it, but somebody did. So the idea is you really have no standing in God's court. Let me see if I can put it in tort law. If I were to take my car and drive around your field and run through all your fences, Suzanne, there would be an injured party. That's you. So my sin has injured you. And you would then drag me into court and seek recompense for the damage I had done to you. What's being said here is there's no point in going into court because there is no damaged party. You haven't hurt God by your sinfulness. You don't help God by your righteousness. So the idea of wanting to go into to a court and settle this somehow is a non-starter because there isn't anybody on the other side in the courtroom. And furthermore, God is the judge. So there's nobody that can drag him into court either. So what he's saying then in verse 8 is, Your wickedness concerns a man like yourself, and your righteousness a son of man. Your wickedness or righteousness is simply to either your benefit or your detriment. It's all you. You don't do anybody else any good. You certainly don't do God any good. So if you're righteous, the benefits are yours. If you're wicked, the punishments are yours. It's all you. There isn't anybody else on the other side of this legal case you want to bring. Verse 9. Because of the multitude of oppressions, people cry out. They call for help because of the arm of the Almighty. All right, so using Israel as an example. When Israel was oppressed by Egypt, they cried out to God. So because of a multitude of oppressions here on earth, people cry out. And they call for help to God. Verse 10. But none says, where is God my maker, who gives songs in the night, who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth, and makes us wiser than the birds of the heavens? In other words, nobody says under these circumstances, there's no God. God gives us songs and made us better than the beasts and all that kind of stuff. Nobody questions that. When he says, nobody says, where is this God? The sense there is, well, if we're having oppression, where's God? Verse 10 again. But none says, where is God my maker, who gives songs in the night, who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth, and makes us wiser than the birds of the heavens? There they cry out, but he does not answer because of the pride of evil men. So what he's saying is, when people cry out, he doesn't answer because of the pride of evil men, which is to say, if you are not righteous and you cry out, you hear silence. Verse 13, Surely God does not hear an empty cry, nor does the Almighty regard it. 
So the empty cry here is a cry from someone who is deserving of what's happening to it. So if such a person cries out, God doesn't hear it. 14. How much less when you say that you do not see him, that the case is before him and you are waiting for him? This is a heavy and light argument. People under oppression crying out, especially if they're crying out in their pride, God doesn't listen. How much less will he listen to somebody like you who is not righteous and who has presumptively put your case up in the heavenly court and crossed your arms and stamped your feet and say, well, I'm waiting for an answer. That's the sense of that. It's like when you go into a store and you've got bad merchandise and you throw the bad merchandise on the counter and you stand there like this with your arms crossed and you look at them and say, I'm waiting for an answer. The ball's in your court. So what Elihu is saying is, Job, your attitude is the ball's in God's court and you demand an answer. And, oh, by the way, you're not going to get one. Verse 15. And now, because his anger does not punish, and he does not make much note of transgression, Job opens his mouth in empty talk. He multiplies words without knowledge. So, now because his anger does not punish. Whose anger? God's. So, because God is not punishing you proportional to how bad you are, you are tempted then to speak words without knowledge. In other words, as I'm looking at what's going on with you, Job, and the pride that you're exhibiting, and your attitude before God, near as I can tell, you ought to be dead. You're not. And because you're not dead, you are acting presumptuously, because you're not dead. But you probably should be. Chapter 36. And Elihu continued and said, Bear with me a little, and I will show you. For I have something to say on God's behalf. I will get my knowledge from afar and ascribe righteousness to my Maker. For truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. So listen to what this young man has said, which is sort of why I kind of think maybe the reason God doesn't rebuke him is because he is a foolish young man. And so what he's saying here is, one who is perfect in knowledge, me, is with you. So I'm going to talk and I'm going to instruct you because I know better. Five, behold, God is mighty and does not despise any. He is mighty in strength of understanding. He does not keep the wicked alive, but gives the afflicted their right. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but with kings on the throne, he sets them forever and they are exalted. What he's talking about is the power of God over human affairs. And kings are set on the throne by his favor. Verse 8. And if they, the kings, are bound in chains and caught in the cords of affliction, then he declares to them their work and their transgression that they are behaving arrogantly. (laughs) So here we have this young man who says, perfect knowledge is with you. That's me. And then he talks about kings behaving arrogantly. So nine again. Then he declares to them, the kings, their work and their transgressions that they are behaving arrogantly. He opens their ears to instruction and commands that they return from iniquity. If they listen and serve him, 
they complete their days in prosperity and their years in pleasantness. If they do not listen, they perish by the sword and die without knowledge. So what he's saying is he sets up kings. If the kings go astray, he will reach out and correct them. If they then take the correction, they will be reseated on the throne like Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar was corrected by God and Nebuchadnezzar repented and Nebuchadnezzar was returned to his throne. However, if they don't, then the sword will go over their land and they will die without knowledge. Verse 13. The godless in heart cherish anger. They do not cry for help when he binds them. They die in youth and their life ends among the cult prostitutes. He delivers the afflicted by their affliction and he opens their ears by adversity. He also allured you out of distress into a broad place where there is no cramping. And what he set on your table was full of fatness. So the godless in heart cherish anger. Who's angry? In this case, we're talking about Job. So the godless in heart we're talking about is Job, who is angry, and he is angry. What they're accusing him of is arrogance in the face of God. They're accusing him of secret wickedness. They're accusing him of every possible thing that they can think of that would justify the treatment he's getting. Verse 15, he delivers the afflicted by their affliction and opens their ears by adversity. We talked about this last time. Remember in Leviticus, where it says that if Israel turns away from God and disregards God, God will chasten them. And the idea of the chastening is not vengeance or recompense for what they have done, it is by way of getting their attention and getting them to change direction and come back. So the adversity that has come upon Job in Elihu's perspective is certainly justified. But the intent here is not to make Job suffer. The intent is to get Job's attention. So Job will then turn from his wicked ways, humble himself before God, confess his sins, repent, and be restored. So in verse 15, he delivers the afflicted by their affliction. So what he's saying is the affliction that God puts on people is intended to deliver them and bring them to repentance so that they can then be blessed. And then in verse 16, he also allured you out of distress into a broad place where there was no cramping and what he set on your table was full of fatness. In other words, in your previous state, before all this happened to you, God had allured you. He had blessed you. He had set you in a broad place. He had filled your table with fatness. And the idea there was to keep you on the straight and narrow. Obviously, it didn't work because you're being afflicted. 17. But you are full of the judgment on the wicked. Judgment and justice seize you. Beware lest wrath entice you into scoffing. And let not the greatness of the ransom turn you aside. This whole book has been his friends misunderstanding and insisting that his only way out is repentance. Now this, verse 18. Beware lest wrath entice you to scoffing. That's pretty clear. Remember the original wager, if you will, between God and Satan. Is Satan said, if you put him in my hands, I will make him curse you to your face. And so what Elihu has said is beware lest all this wrath entice you into scoffing. Elihu doesn't know about the wager between God and Satan. But what Elihu is saying is 
beware lest you lose the bet for God. So beware lest wrath entice you into scoffing, and let not the greatness of the ransom turn you aside. What does that mean? The ransom is you must humble yourself before God and confess your sins that God may forgive you. You are clearly operating in pride here. And to someone who is operating in arrogance and pride and has got his nose up in the air and is going off in the wrong direction, the prospect of turning around and humbling himself before everybody is more than he can bear. So the greatness of the ransom, the ransom that you have to give is your repentance. And in your current mental and spiritual state, that ransom is more than you're willing to come up with. And so what Elihu says, don't let the size of the ransom that you have to pay in order to get out of this deter you from doing it. Verse 19. Will your cry for help avail to keep you from distress or all the force of your strength? Crying out is not going to do any good because nobody's here. Remember, we talked about that earlier. Nobody's listening to the unrighteous when they cry out. And your own strength isn't going to be able to save you. That's pretty obvious from where you are. 20. Do not long for the night when peoples vanish in their place. Take care. Do not turn to iniquity. For this you have chosen rather than affliction. Do not long for the night. Remember what he said earlier on. I wish that I had been stillborn. We all go down to the grave. I'm ready to go now. Because what's happening to me is more than I can bear. So what Elihu is saying is do not long for the night. Don't long for the grave. So do not long for the night when peoples vanish in their place. Take care. Do not turn to iniquity. For this you have chosen rather than affliction. Behold, God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Who has prescribed for him his way? Or who can say you have done wrong? Job has simply said, I don't understand what's going on. I have done nothing to deserve what's happening to me. And he has questioned God. He's asked God, what is going on? I haven't done anything to deserve this. And what Elihu is saying is God is your teacher. And he teaches through affliction. So the wayward fall into affliction because God is teaching them something. Furthermore, there's nobody who can say to him, you've done wrong. Simply because there isn't anybody to judge between God and man. God is the judge. So 24. Remember to extol his work, of which men have sung. All mankind has looked on it. Man beholds it from afar. Behold, God is great, and we know him not. The number of his years is unsearchable. So what this is is a poem, if you will, to the greatness and glory of God. Verse 27. For he draws up the drops of water and then distills his mist in rain, which the skies pour down and drop on mankind abundantly. By the way, that's what's known as the hydrologic cycle. That was not scientifically explained until sometime in the 18th or 19th century. And here it is just sort of bloop. Yeah. Water evaporates from the surface of the ground and from the waters. It goes up, it condenses into clouds and falls again. That's the hydrologic cycle. That wasn't explained, I, I don't remember precisely when, but the Enlightenment, 17th, 18th century, 29. Can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds, the thunderings of his pavilion? Behold, he scatters his lightning about him 
and covers the roots of the sea. For by these he judges people. He gives food in abundance. He covers his hands with the lightning and commands it to strike the mark. I mean, you can just see this is something out of a superhero comic book. You know, covers his hand with the lightning and commands it to strike them. I mean, you know, great imagery here. You can see where the comic book people get it. So he covers his hands with the lightning and commands it to strike the mark. Its crashing declares his presence, and cattle also declare that he rises. So the idea here is God has created everything. He controls everything, and it is he who sustains us by bringing rain in its season and, and all that kind of stuff. He judges people. He gives food in abundance. So the whole idea is we can depend completely upon him for our very existence and our very sustenance, which is true. The things that these four men are saying are generally true. They are generally speaking true things. We have people study the book of Proverbs. This is right out of the book of Proverbs, a lot of it, or the book of Proverbs right out of this, depending on which way the writing was. So the stuff that they're saying is generally true. What they don't understand is that the general truths do not apply in the case of Job, because God has declared Job at the beginning of the book to be righteous. And this whole affliction that has come upon Job is the result of a contest between God and Satan. Nothing to do with anything that Job did. So as they're trying to ascribe to God judgment because of all the things that have happened to Job, they are saying true things about God and about the way the world works. All they're saying is true, but it doesn't apply. And that's the part they don't get. And Job, of course, insists it doesn't apply. And they're saying, what do you mean it doesn't apply? Of course it applies. It's true. Well, yeah, it is, but it doesn't apply. 37. At this also my heart trembles. It leaps out of its place. Keep listening to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that comes from his mouth. Under the whole heaven he lets it go and is lightning to the corners of the earth. This, this is just poetry. It's extolling God. I mean, these are great hymns of praise, if you will. And you can imagine somebody like Handel or Bach or somebody like that setting this to music. Verse 4. After it, his voice roars. He thunders with his majestic voice and does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things that we cannot comprehend. For to the snow, he says, fall on the earth. Likewise to the downpour, his mighty downpour. He seals up the hand of every man that all men whom he made may know it. So the idea is that he controls all of nature, he controls all of the creation, he is so far above us and above anything we can imagine or do that the parenthetical thing is, you're questioning this being why? And the whole point of this is to get Job to come off of his pride and humble himself before God because they think that he has not done so and that the reason for all of this is pride and wickedness. And we talked earlier about the price of the ransom price of the ransom in this case is you've got to come out of your pride and you've got to humble yourself before God. And so what he's doing is he is describing God in the most majestic words that he can conjure up to get Job to understand God's here 
you with your pride are way down here and you need to knock the pride off because you don't compare. Verse 8, Then the beasts go into their lairs and remain in their dens. From its chamber comes the whirlwind and cold from the, from the scattering winds. By the breath of God ice is given and the broad waters are frozen fast. He loads the thick cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world, whether for correction or for his land or for love. He causes it to happen. So three things there. God causes all this to happen. And the reasons that he causes it to happen are correction. In other words, something needs to be repaired, usually a person, for, for the land. The land needs the rain, the land needs the snow, the land needs stuff in order for the land to continue to produce life. So we've got correction for the sake of the land itself, and then for love. The idea that he gives the rain in its season and gives growth to your crops and all those kinds of things are just out of the abundance of his own love. This is a wonderful passage of scripture. It's absolutely true. It just doesn't apply to Job. Verse 14, Hear this, O Job. Stop and consider the wondrous works of God. Do you know how God lays his command upon them and causes the lightnings of his cloud to shine? Do you know the balancings of the clouds, the wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge? You whose garments are hot when the earth is still because of the south winds. So, the idea here is, Job, I've just described the power and majesty of God, and there you are, someone whose garments get hot when the south wind blows. In other words, you don't even have air conditioning. I mean, that's the sense of it. When the mistral wind, the south wind blows, and everybody is hot and miserable and tired, and everybody really wishes that the things would cool off, Job... You can't even get cool when he blows the south wind. Yet, you are in the face of this mighty God. Verse 18. Can you, like him, spread out the skies, hard as a cast metal mirror? Teach us what we shall say to him. We cannot draw up our case because of darkness. Are you able to change the character of the sky? Can you spread it out like a mirror? If you can, parenthesis, teach us what we should say to this God, if you're so powerful. This is all sarcastic, by the way. We can't draw up our case because of dark. In other words, we are walking in darkness compared to this God, so we couldn't draw up a case in his presence. And if you're so wise, show us how to do it. 20. Shall it be told him that I would speak? Did a man ever wish that he would be swallowed up? Shall it be told him that I would speak? Shall it be told God that I would speak? Um, it's actually better that you would be swallowed up than that you would stand in the presence of God and arrogantly presume to state your case. Rather than do that, you would really rather be swallowed up. It would be better for you. 21. And now, no one looks at the light when it is bright in the skies, when the wind has passed and cleared them. Out of the north comes golden splendor, God is clothed with awesome majesty, the Almighty. We cannot find him. He is great in power. Justice and abundant righteousness he will not violate. 
Therefore men fear him. He does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. Now, this is the end of Elihu. And he does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. What did he say back at the beginning of chapter 36? Boy, am I wise. Go back to 36.4. For truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. So here's this young whippersnapper who's presuming to instruct these four graybeards, Job and his three friends, and he is just full of himself, and yet he presumes to correct Job for being full of himself. They just find that kind of ironic. So we'll pick it up at 38 next time where God then enters the conversation. As I said, most of Job fits right in with Proverbs or Ecclesiastes. It's Eastern wisdom. The thing that we have, especially with our lightning-fast Greek minds, is we tend to go to places like Proverbs, and we tend to take the maxims in Proverbs as being laws of nature. In other words, if you do X, then Y should happen. And it doesn't always happen. So then what you have is scoffers who will come along and say, well, that stuff's a bunch of hooey, because I did X and Y didn't happen. So this is all a bunch of hooey. What Job does is it shows you, yes, Y does follow X normally. The example I would use is that there's an old saying, and I probably won't say it right, the race is not always to the swift, nor the contest to the strong. And then parentheses, but that's the way to bet. There are exceptions. The tortoise and the hare is an example. Different lesson. That's a lesson about diligence, not about speed. But the point is, that's the way to live your life. You don't order your life based around the exceptions. You base your life on what it says in Scripture are the general truths. What Job shows you, however, is there's something going on that is outside of these general truths that are stated in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and so forth. There's more to it. So that to me is the great value of the book of Job. It shows you that, yeah, all this stuff in Proverbs is true and you ought to live your life that way, but sometimes you're going to go through affliction despite ordering your life as perfectly as you possibly can according to the wisdom of the Bible. Sometimes it's just not going to work. And you need to understand that there's other things going on in the spiritual that you're not privy to. The way I describe it is when you're going through really hard times, and that happens to all of us, the first place that you should look is at yourself. That's where you ought to start. And you ought to examine your life and you ought to see, have I done something to bring this upon myself? And it ought to be an honest examination. And you probably ought to go to somebody who is wise and say, this is happening to me. Have I done something that has brought this upon me? Having said that, the person who counsels you really needs to be gentle because there is a possibility that you haven't done anything to bring this upon yourself. And the place where Job's friends fall down is they are not understanding that there is some possibility other 
than their understanding of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and, and Standard Eastern Word. They, they just cannot appreciate that there might be something else going on, and so they become harsh, and they become condemnatory, and they become accusatory, and they make Job's situation worse by their counsel, even though in their own minds what they're trying to do is they're trying to help. They are trying to get this arrogant fool who has stuck his nose in the air and said, God, I'm righteous, you're wrong in doing this to me. They're trying to get this arrogant fool to turn around, hit his face, suck carpet, repent, so that he can be healed. That's what they're trying to do. Since doing that in this case would do no good whatsoever because Job is in fact a righteous man, what it winds up being is making his plight all the more difficult. So the counsel I'm offering here is when you come upon somebody who is going through a really hard time, don't make things more difficult for it. I mean, if you know specifically something that that person has done that has led to this, by all means, let them know. But if you don't, be gentle. Please consider becoming a sponsor. Please visit crimsonthread.com purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you.